This is Dr. Ara Austin for the School of Molecular Sciences. This podcast is really to help our students set up in career paths that they're interested in. Welcome to this session of Graduating in Science. Now what? Today, we have Dr. Daryl Porcello joining us on our podcast. Dr. Porcello is the Director of STEM Networks and Partnerships at the Children's Creativity Museum in San Francisco. Good morning, Daryl. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Ara. Thanks for having me. And could you briefly introduce yourself to our students? Because I think it would be good for the students to hear about your uh, entire career pathway. Sure. It would also be good for me to hear because it seems to change often. So I have been a STEM educator for about 16 years after I finished my PhD. And primarily, um, I manage, designed, and I also find funding for STEM education projects, mostly within the science community and the children's museum community of, of, in, in the United States. And that could be a whole range of projects for anything like making exhibits or working on hands-on activities or helping uh, educators with professional development. Um, but always sort of focusing on communicating science to the public. So students may not know how you ended up there, meaning science students often think, you know, you get the science degree, you do bench science. Um, what was your academic pathway look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So like I'm sure a lot of the students that are listening to this, um, I started with bench work in the laboratory as an undergraduate. Uh, I went to a school called Bowdoin College. It's in Maine. It's a small liberal arts school, but it had a really wonderful neuroscience program. And I was very interested in how the brain works and how neurons work and slowly discovered something called electrophysiology, which is measuring the activity of neurons. Um, with a lot of equipment and a lot of data processing. And <laughs> I started in um, lower systems. So I started in invertebrates and got a lot of research experience. I also worked the summers at the, uh, the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Some of, you, some of your listeners might be familiar with that, sort of a, a very famous and traditional place to learn about, um, about neuroscience and other sciences. Um, and I then went to grad school at Stanford where I continued in neuroscience and continued in electrophysiology, but moved into mammalian systems and looked at disease models and specifically was looking at pharmacology of absence seizures, um, which is a form of epilepsy. So I did sort of what everyone else did. I kind of did the traditional path. I, I thought I might want to be a, a, a professor one day with a research lab, but as I was in my PhD, which I think a lot of listeners can relate to, um, I had questions uh, and I reflected on if, if that's what I really wanted to do and was unsure. And of course, um, everyone knows the job market is really tight. Um, there's not a lot of jobs and positions available. So as I was struggling with that, the same time, I was lucky enough uh, to be in a program that had some community outreach components. So at that time um, at Stanford, there was a professor and I, I think he's still there or is shortly retiring. His name is William Newsom. He's a famous neuroscientist. He did a program where he um, 
wanted to make sure that every student, I believe in seventh grade in Palo Alto, where Stanford is in California, um, would have some experience, hands-on experience with a real human brain. So every year, we, uh, the graduate students would bring brain specimens from the medical school into the middle schools in Palo Alto and have sort of a day of fun uh, around the brains, talking about them, having the kids interact with them, uh, asking them questions, answering questions. Um, it was really great. And this came about because like a lot of scientists in, in, in um, similar positions to Dr. Newsom, when they realized that their own kid was not getting sort of the scientific experience they were hoping for, they thought they could do something about it. So he started this program. And I was involved in that for a couple, maybe two or three years. And it was, it was probably one of the best days I had during the entire year um, is interacting with the students and telling them stories about the brain and, um, you know, just enjoying myself and seeing the look on their faces and seeing sort of the realization that this is a, a fascinating topic and something they haven't experienced anywhere else. So that sort of unique engagement experience was the core of my desire to think about doing something in education. Um, and I had always liked museums. I, I was always a person that went to museums and enjoyed them. Um, I have fond memories of going to the Museum of Science in Boston when I was a small kid. And, and I thought, you know, this is something I wanna do. And um, I finished my PhD in 2003. And what I did, which, is sort of rare these days, is I just started to cold, cold call museums. Um, I, just, I just looked in directories and I called people and I emailed people and I said, do you have a job? Because I love to work in it. And I think, and this, this, is, this is interesting, Ara, I think a lot, of, um, a lot of people getting their PhD and going through this process and thinking about maybe going into education would think, oh, well, I have a PhD. So of course, uh, you know, science museums want me to work there. And of, and of course there might be a role, but right. it was a lot harder than I thought. <laughs> and, and many museums didn't really know how to respond or just didn't respond. But I was very lucky that um, one of the human resources um, individual staff members at the Lawrence Hall of Science, which is the Public Science Center of UC Berkeley, actually took my resume to someone who had recently got an NSF grant to build an exhibit on nanotechnology education and wasn't quite sure how to do it. So he was interested um, in me and interested in my experience and possibly to use me as someone who can interview scientists that could be sort of the sources of information for this exhibit. And when I came in to talk to him, um, I distinctly remember him being unsure and me saying, well, I'm just gonna volunteer until you hire me. Um, <laughs> which, you know, might not be the best decision of my life, but you know, after a few months of volunteering, um, I was hired as sort of a postdoc in, in, that, in that sort of line. And that, that started now my 16 year career in science museums. And of course, I'd be happy to go into more details, but I think I've bored your listeners enough. <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> no, I think I, it's, it's great and very interesting. 
Um, and one thing that I always see, and this is true of undergraduate students, graduate students, wherever they may be in their scientific, academic um, career path, is that um, we have, uh, I, I don't know how to say this uh, correctly, but it's, it's really hard for us to, to have the courage to leave. And I think it really stems from the prestige uh, and pride that goes into a lot of the work that we do, even at the very you know, low undergraduate level. So what made you ultimately go, okay, I have the guts to actually leave you know, and pursue something that is something that I am not, um, kind of qualified or trained to do? Yeah, Ara, that's a great question. And it's definitely something I struggled with, a lot of people struggled with. I mean, when you're getting a PhD, especially at a place like Stanford, it's just almost a given that you're going to become a professor. Um, <laughs> you're going to run a lab and you're going to go forward and do amazing things and, you know, maybe one day win a Nobel Prize or something, right? Like that's, that's just great. It's part of the culture. It, and there are definitely pros to that culture. Um, I, I had some amazing professors. I met some uh, great scientists. They were doing extraordinary things at Stanford. And, and you know, you, you're in that, that environment and, and you feel like this is the norm. And sometimes it eclipses the possibilities that are out there. And, and I just think one of the sort of motivating factors for me is maybe a realization of what were the next steps. Now, I'm not saying, you know, this is, it's, this is something should be avoided at all costs, but I, I was in a lab where the, the majority of people were postdocs, and I saw that it was definitely a long haul um, to go through a postdoc, especially in some fields compared to others, before you're even sort of ready to apply for a job. So in my mind, I thought, well, you know, I could do a postdoc or I can try this. Um, and, and I felt that I, you know, even though I didn't have a lot of experience, um, I sort of was coming off the glow of just finishing a PhD, which was maybe, maybe a little bit, bit misleading that I could do anything. And, and I thought, well, I can try this. And if it doesn't work, you know, maybe I can go back and, try a postdoc. And I did an interview for industry postdocs and some other postdocs and some other sort of more traditional science jobs. But I thought, if, if I don't try now, um, I, I'm never going to be able to go back to this. I'm never going to be able to, to, to experiment with this. So I've, I did all sort of, I, I crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. I did the traditional thing from undergraduate to graduate school. And I thought, now I'm going to try to take a risk and mm -hmm. see where this leads. And I thought, you know, there was all that like positive vibes that I experienced working with those kids and the brains that I thought back to and thinking like, you know, that was fun and maybe m the most fun I had in grad school. So let, let's, let's try this. Yeah, and I think that is something that I can personally really relate to. Um, I was originally set to go off to medical school and when I met with um, a person in the admissions committee at a medical school, 
Um, that was when the memories of me being a teaching assistant and working with undergraduate students in general chemistry labs, it just came flooding back while I'm yep. sitting at that interview. And that was something that I couldn't get rid of. And I was like, I, and at the interview, I told this person, <laughs> I said, um, I don't think this is right for me. Um, I think I really, my calling is to work with the students. That's what brings me the most happiness in my life at this time. And they told me, that's a good idea that you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, you interview well. You know what to say. You've, you've rehearsed the answers. Um, yeah. But you should do what makes you feel um, happy and positive and bring positive you know, influence to your life and to other people. Yep. And All right. We're kindred spirits. It's amazing yes. that in those very sort of like stressful moments, <laughs> it's sometimes hard to hold back your true feelings. Like it, <laughs> they really, they really come out. And, and I had similar interviews. I probably wasn't as brave as you, but I definitely had thoughts going through some of the interviews at like pharmaceutical companies and big pharma and looking at all the calcium flippers and giving my job talk and realizing like, God, this is just, is not fun. Like I, I just, I don't think this is going to be as rewarding as something else I've been considering, which is. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have a simple question and it's kind of a silly question. So how, as a museum director, obviously you create a lot of different exhibits that, that the public goes and sees. Um, so how does a museum go about deciding what to display as an exhibit? Well, that's a great question, Ara. So there are many, many museums in, in the United States, especially science museums. I mean, they're very popular in this country. They have a lot of uh, prestige of their own, a lot of good public sentiment around them. And some of them are much bigger than others. And one, and th th this might come up a lot. I, I, I definitely had misconceptions about the field of education and museums in general as I transitioned from um, finishing my PhD into museum. And one of those misconceptions, I think many of your listeners might also have, is that these museums are somehow sitting on a pile of money and they can decide, I want to build an exhibit about space. So we're <laughs> going to do that today, right? Like it, it, it was this sense that like, oh, there's probably funding somewhere in this system already in place. But in fact, there is many similar mechanisms to obtain funding as there is in the scientific world. So I soon realized that a lot of sort of the most exciting exhibits out there and a lot of the cutting edge stuff is often funded through grants and foundations. And that is funded through proposals. And so I was immediately thrust into grant writing and thinking about that. And this was something that I didn't know would really happen. So sometimes the, the way those exhibits are decided is determining sort of what money is available. Of course, trying to intersect, intersect that with the vision of the museum, um, the educational philosophy. Sometimes museums have a content focus also like a planetarium or something on space or maybe something on health that has to be considered. But amazingly, sometimes the subject matter is decided through opportunity and often funding opportunity. And, and that definitely plays a part in how exhibits are made and planned for. You brought up an excellent point that um, I stress to everyone about 
Uh, just because people get a PhD doesn't mean that we can now go educate the public and teach yeah. everyone. <laughs> that, that's a super important point. And, and Ara, you know, you and I are on the exact same wavelength. And one thing I think that we both struggle with is when we work with scientists that want to do more public outreach or engagement, um, sometimes there's a learning curve for them as well, just because they have um, mentees and like students and maybe teach a class, they might not be the best person to design an exhibit. They have to understand, um, just like engagement specialists understand, that engagement science is a profession. It, it is, is a profession with research and we follow best practices and we try to improve what we do, just like science. There sometimes is, uh, is a misconception that uh, getting a PhD and maybe going through sort of an academic process immediately imbibes you with this superpower of uh, education specialists, but it's not always perfect as we both know. <laughs> so a lot of our work in general, in terms of doing STEM ed, is communicating what we know about science to a wide variety of audiences. So in a museum setting, how do people go about communicating science effectively so that it reaches the public that can range from you know, young children to older adults? Yeah. Well, it's, that's a great question, Ara. And I think um, I was just on a, a meeting or a call this morning where we were talking about some of this and in sort of a more specific way, but in a generalizable way, I think one of the first things you have to do is set goals um, and think about, you know, what you're trying to do. Is it, is it knowledge transfer? Is it, is it changing attitudes, emotional learning? Is it trying to stimulate conversation? Is it maybe trying to empower folks to change policy or change their behavior? There's a lot of things we have to think about when we start a program or a product. And then the other sort of major thing I think that we have to focus on is thinking about audience. So, you know, in the museum community, we, we deal with a public audience, a wide range of individuals and ages and backgrounds. And we like to think that we can reach the majority of those audiences. And often we think about, especially museums, thinking about family units and thinking about caregivers and children, thinking about those pairs. So let's, let's imagine where you are now an undergraduate student. So you haven't even embarked on your PhD journey and you know, you're an undergraduate student and this student is a lot smarter than both of us. So we <laughs> go off and do the whole blown PhD and then come back and do this and all of yeah. that. Um, but this undergraduate student knows that he or she is creative and he or, he or she wants to, you know, communicate their science knowledge to the public, perhaps go to um, embark on a career path where they work in a science museum setting. So to this undergraduate student, what would your advice be now that you've done it all? Really strongly consider if you want a PhD or not. Um, a PhD will definitely open doors, but it does change things as well. And it's possible that you might want some other types of experiences before you make that commitment. I often encourage um, students like that that are finishing their undergraduate degrees to think about 
volunteering or doing an internship or maybe getting a job at a science museum to see what it's like. Or there's many other community programs that deal with STEM now. It's a very sort of popular topic in, in our nation and in the world. If you're really motivated and you want to do it, you should consider it. I finished my, my undergraduate in 1996. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of specific programs around STEM education, especially, you know, some of the, the more advanced techniques like uh, interactive technologies or some of the other things you could study today. So there are graduate programs for that kind of work. And maybe that's another consideration, either a master's or even a PhD in, in that kind of field. I mean, you've got the hands-on science experience now. Maybe, maybe you want to consider a PhD or an advanced degree in another area. So my first, I think, overall suggestion is breathe <laughs> and think about um, an experience maybe that will give you some background in education, like working at an institution or working with, with the public in general, before you start off on a PhD, either in science or maybe an advanced degree in another area. Yeah, and you make an excellent point. You know, I, even though I am an educator, obviously in the higher education sector, I am against the idea of people keep getting degrees, meaning over-educating themselves, thinking that that's going to lead to better qualifications once they get to the job. At times, that is true. You know, for instance, we do need a PhD, postdoc, whatever, if you want to come back into the academia, you know, so on and so forth. But a lot of the jobs that are out there in the industry or with the public sector or nonprofit organizations really value experience. So I think, you know, your point about gaining that experience and then deciding now that I've got the experience and the people who are in this field have certain types of degrees or certain types of experiences, that is what I'm going to further pursue to make myself a better candidate. Um, I think that is an excellent point. You, you are exactly right. And I 100% agree with you, RN. And it might be possible. I don't know your personal experience, but I know when I went from undergraduate to a PhD, I was so gung-ho that I didn't even skip the summer. I went, like, <laughs> I went like immediately to Stanford like the day after. It was, it was kind of insane to think about it now. Um, and I would not do that again as a 21-year-old person. Um, so I might have some emotional scars that, that is <laughs> my advice to, to these folks. But yeah, I, I think be open-minded and think about the opportunities um, before you jump directly in to another advanced degree. And I love what you said. I think in our society, we do have this tendency to think, if I have another degree or another credential, that's going to be the thing to do it. And in our world, it's not always. Yep, and, and that is correct. So Daryl, thank you so much for your time this morning. And I know that students will definitely appreciate your insight. Thanks, Ara. It was fun. And, and any of the students, I'm sure you'll have your, my contact information um, attached to this, but they're welcome to follow up with me or through you if they have any other questions for me. Absolutely. Thank you very much. More information on this episode of Graduating in Science, Now What?, can be found on School of Molecular Sciences website, sms.asu.edu.